Hello, and thanks for joining us for this episode of the Gene Panel Podcast. Today, we're going to be talking about RNA biology. It's going to be myself, Julian, uh, Ali, and Aideen. Now, RNA biology is a very, very big field, so we're actually going to narrow our focus down to talk about RNA therapies. Uh, particularly, we're going to talk about RNA vaccines, which is a very hot topic considering how the latest COVID-19 vaccines, uh, for example, Moderna and Pfizer, uh, utilize RNA technology. Before we talk about the, the, the RNA technology, which I think is really cool, we must first uh, go over what RNA is and its function within our bodies. So we already talked about RNA a little bit in our first episode, but a quick reminder wouldn't really hurt. So RNA, or ribonucleic acid, is a molecule that's very similar to DNA. Um, it also it has a backbone consisting of alternating sugars, uh, phosphate groups, um, and with one of four bases attached to each sugar, much like DNA. But unlike DNA, RNA is single-stranded, while DNA is yeah. double-stranded, yeah. Yeah, and so in DNA, you see a TGC, but in RNA, that T is replaced with a U. But right. otherwise, they're relatively similar. And so also in the first episode, we talked about the central dogma of genetics. Um, and I don't know if I covered this, but um, so we, well, we talked about DNA to, to mRNA to protein, but of course, it's not as simple as that. But for the sake of this episode, we're just going to focus on that because that's what our um, discussion is going to revolve around. So in our nucleus, we have DNA um, and that DNA encodes for mRNA. So you have proteins that are going to read the DNA and turn it into uh, mRNA. That mRNA is then, in our cells, in eukaryotic cells, are going to be translocated into the uh, cytoplasm where our um, protein factories reside, and those are the ribosomes. And ribosomes are essentially going to read that mRNA, um, link together a bunch of amino acids to generate um, essentially the workhorses of our cells, and those are proteins. Um, and you know there are other types of mRNA. So in this episode, we're going to be focusing on messenger RNAs, and those are the ones that... Um, Essentially, they're the message for proteins, but there are other types of RNA, mainly, um, you know, generally non-coding RNAs, and we'll talk about those as well and their use in therapy. Right, but for now, we'll just focus on the mRNA since um, that's the technology that's being used for the for the vaccines, and that's yeah. why it is such a hot topic right now. So both yeah. the the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines that protect against COVID nineteen are well, make use of RNA te mRNA technology. And a year yeah. ago, nobody really knew what an mRNA vaccine was, since no country in the world had ever really approved of one. Until now, where yeah. this mRNA technology has led to the two fastest vaccine trials in history, which I actually didn't know. I think that's pretty cool. Yeah. So, and, and I should also add that mm -hmm. mRNA vaccines are a bit more, are, are newer, but we did have um, RNA technology before, but it, it wasn't really based off of mRNA. But yeah, it's very it's very amazing how fast um, mRNA is making its uh, is is making itself known in the in the med medical world. Yeah, I mean, if, correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm pretty sure the mRNA vaccines have only really come about because of all the previous work um, that was being done for cancer vaccines. Precisely, I think, like the labs that yeah, the labs that made these vaccines um, were able to translate all that information that they were working towards cure for cancer and were able to yep. adapt that for the COVID pandemic, which is amazing. Yeah, And, and that goes without yeah. saying that we're in awe of these scientists and they exactly. deserve every credit. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and we're, we're just... definitely going to be talking about this, about the, uh, I guess, history behind um, RNA therapy and why we were able to use it so quickly in this pandemic. 
Okay, so we're just going to jump right into COVID vaccines because I think that this is what everybody wants to hear about. Um, and you are all by now probably really familiar with the two big vaccines that are currently available, the Pfizer and the Moderna vaccines. And both of these are mRNA-based vaccines. But there's a third one that I'm just going to briefly mention, which is the AstraZeneca vaccine. And this one isn't actually mRNA-based, it's DNA-based, but based off of everything that we just mentioned, you can see that DNA is converted into mRNA. So mRNA is still the bridge connecting the vaccine to immunity in the AstraZeneca vaccine, even if it's not actually an mRNA-based vaccine. So the big question is, how do the COVID vaccines actually work? And there are some essential concepts that we need to grasp to understand this. The first thing is, is that these three vaccines are trying to introduce a viral S protein, which is unique to the coronavirus or to SARS-CoV-2. And it's the protein that the virus uses to bind to the ACE2 receptor in the cells of your lung and infect your body. And the main aim of these vaccines is to induce an antibody response so that if you get infected with the real virus, all the antibodies you have against the S protein can swarm the real viruses and prevent the virus um, adhering to your cells and infecting your body. And this is generally called a neutralizing antibody response. Uh, I just I just had a quick question. Something that just yeah. came up. So I thought the S protein, so like the spike protein, which is what the S protein stands for, right? Yeah, I should have said that, yeah. Is well no 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 that yeah, that's fine. But uh but isn't that a general so any protein? It's like a general any, any term protein, for yeah. viruses, yeah. yeah. So I guess the only thing that's unique about the S protein for this is it's the specific amino acid. So it many viruses have the spike protein, correct me if I'm wrong, but it's yeah. just they differ between the viruses. So, for example, they're made up of different amino acids. So they're different proteins, but they have the same role for the protein yeah. for the viruses that have them. Yeah, I'm pretty sure that's correct. Like, among all coronaviruses, they'll have like these spike proteins giving them their name, Corona. Um, yeah. yeah. And for uh, our yeah, audience, Aideen is the immunology specialist. Julian and I are just um, we're back dancers here. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't do a specialist. But yeah. Um, I'll try my best guys. Um, but I mean, virology is like something that I'm super interested in. Um, it was probably the only course I enjoyed at U of T. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so I want to do it justice, but feel free to ask me any questions. So sure. I guess the important thing to think about with vaccines, right? And thinking about Emma is it's going to take time to make these proteins. Um, and so it comes as no surprise that it takes around two to four weeks for antibody levels to increase in your body because your body has to go through this process of converting the mRNA to protein. And then it, that protein needs to be recognized by your body. And this whole cascade of events needs to come after that to actually make antibodies. And the other thing that I really quickly want to mention is um, you also have to think about that, like the vaccine is also inducing T cell responses. T cells are the other like big heavy hitters in your immune system. Um, so although antibodies are like, it's one way to measure your immune response, we also have to think about T cell responses and these other big players uh, that are harder to measure their, their um, effects upon vaccination, but they're really important. And T cells are helping a lot when it comes to um, viral infection. So I want to talk briefly about like the structure of these vaccines. The Pfizer and the Moderna vaccines, like I said, are the truly mRNA-based vaccines. 
and they're being delivered by lipid nanoparticles. So basically they get the mRNA and they wrap it in fat and they inject it into your arm. Yeah. And the mRNA construct that's encapsulated in this little ball of fat um, contains all the normal structural elements that would allow protein synthesis to occur. So it's essentially the exact same thing as if like mRNA had been created in your body. Hmm. And this allows it to be effectively um, and efficiently translated into protein. And cor- correct me if I'm wrong, but because I've, I've also used lipid nanoparticles in some of my experiments in undergrad lab. But the whole mm-hmm. point of it is that the RNA can't get into the cells by itself. Like you need something so that it can bypass the cell membrane. And that's the whole purpose of the particles, right? It's endocytose, right? Right. Yeah, I actually don't know. I, I kind of thought that it was the other way around where like having it wrapped in this ball of fat would make it really easy to be taken up by cells. Yeah, exactly. It's like, exactly. Like, yeah. Yes. Like, yes. Yeah. Okay, cool. <laughs> okay. Um, and as opposed to this, the AstraZeneca vaccine, which is DNA based, um, isn't wrapped around in fat. We put it in a different virus. We put it in an adenovirus, um, which is also a virus that is, or a family of viruses that is commonly found in, your everyday life. Um, but this time, adenoviruses are acting as a viral vector for coronavirus material. And the adenovirus is what is like transporting coronavirus material into your cells to allow your cells to make the COVID proteins. And although it's a different kind of virus, it's not a coronavirus. So you're not being infected by the adenovirus. It's simply like being used as like a transport vessel. Um, which I thought was kind of interesting. And I guess like one of the big questions around DNA-based vaccines and even with the RNA vaccine is like, um, is it going to enter or integrate into our our genomes? It should be said that the AstraZeneca vaccine has had no evidence of that uh, being possible. And essentially the way that I think about the AstraZeneca vaccine is it's just kind of going one step before the Pfizer and the Moderna vaccines, like they're starting at the DNA space, whereas the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines are just starting at the RNA. So it's kind yeah. of just one step ahead or one step back, depending on how you look at it. But it so all I, achieves the same thing. Yeah. So I guess with the AstraZeneca one, so you mentioned how um, with with mRNA-based vaccines, uh, scientists have to add themselves, you know, things like the uh, five prime cap or the three prime poly tail. But if you just give the DNA. Um, the cell is essentially going to add all those modifications itself. So it's, you know, giving the cell more work to do in that sense. Well, that's a good point. Yeah, yeah, yeah I guess that is an important thing to bring up. Um, yeah, I'm not actually sure, but I guess that would be helpful. Right. Um, yeah. I mean, yeah. you're essentially just asking the cell to do some of the stuff for you. We love that. Put them to work. <laughs> if, human- if they're not working hard enough. <laughs> Okay, so let's talk about what's happening immunologically speaking. Um, Let's focus on mRNA-based vaccines. The important thing is, like, what is being delivered through the vaccine is functionally inactive. So the mRNA that can encode the SARS-CoV-2 spike protein is in a blob of fat, like I said, and that is being injected into your arm muscle. In your arm muscle, the fat blobs containing the mRNA are absorbed by some cells, and the main type of cell that we want to catch the blobs are immune cells called dendritic cells. The dendritic cells are kind of like the surveillance system of your body, 
And um, they are also known as professional antigen presenting cells. They take up the mRNA, they translate it into protein, and they present it on the surface of their cells. Dendritic cells then translocate to your lymph nodes or your glands, as you might commonly know them, um, where they meet their old friends, T and B cells. And the T and B cells in your lymph nodes, there are some that have the receptor that is directly specific to the viral S protein, and they will bind the antigen that's on the dendritic cell. This will lead to huge activation cascades and expansion of these cells. And the big one that we kind of talk about and that is talked a lot about in the news are your B cells, because these are what um, will end up producing your antibody responses. So the cells expand your lymph nodes and they then travel through your body producing um, all of these immune effector molecules. But this takes around two weeks um, to create. So you can kind of see why people aren't immune at the moment that they are vaccinated. Mm -hmm. Not only does the mRNA need to be translated into protein, which can take a long time, we have to talk about um, cell transit in your body and then cell expansion in your lymph nodes. It takes time to gain immunity, but um, what this does is it tells your dendritic cells that they are seeing the real virus. They are seeing the real thing, even when they're not. And this is essentially how all vaccines work. And um, it's amazing how quickly uh, this, this type of vaccine was put into effect. And you can see why it's effective because it relies on these old concepts that we've been using for decades. Mm. Um, and overall, it's really good at creating immune response. Just a, just a quick question for you, Aideen. I know I probably should have yeah. asked this before, but you're on a roll, you know, so I didn't want to interrupt. But mm -hmm. when you're talking about delivering the mRNA into our bodies, what do you mean? Like, what does it mean that the mRNA is functionally inactive? Um, I guess the important thing to think about here is that coronaviruses are RNA-based viruses. Like, we talked about that in our episode. Mm. Um, and I guess what I'm trying to get at here is, like, just having one little section of the virus's genetic material, the S protein, mm -hmm. isn't enough for it to be like a full virus. It's, oh, okay. it's not enough um, right. material for the virus to replicate. So you're essentially like delivering effect. enough mRNA such that your body will mount an immune response, but it won't actually, the, the mRNA isn't actually harmful to us in the sense that it, will, it won't cause like the COVID-19 response. Yeah, and I guess... If we're thinking of it like that, I guess if you put the entire COVID genome into a lipid nanoparticle, mm -hmm. it would be like the same thing as infecting you right. with the virus. Right, right, got it. So we've kind of like stopped that from happening by just using a tiny piece of it. Mm -hmm. And therefore it being functionally inactive. Okay. Yeah. So although like North America has been opening up a bunch with um, the huge vaccination efforts that have been taking place, Something that we're all checking the news for is information about variants. Um, as more uh, SARS-CoV-2 variants come out, the more we need to be concerned about the efficacy of these vaccines that have been so effective and great um, at helping us get to a better place with the pandemic. So if you were to ask me, are we at the mercy of virus evolution when it comes to vaccines? I would say yes. We exist in a constant arms race with SARS-CoV-2, in my opinion. Um, and that's because mRNA-based vaccines were made to encode the protein structure of the original pandemic-causing SARS-CoV-2 strain. So we're talking about this strain that existed in 
March 2020. And at the time of recording, it's July 2021. A lot can happen in over a year. And we know that because I guess the big variance, variant that we're worried about now is the Delta variant. Um, and if a new variant comes along that is a significantly different strain that um, doesn't have the same S protein structure, but is still somehow able to infect cells through the same uh, receptor mechanisms as the original SARS-CoV-2 virus, well, that would spell a lot of trouble for the vaccination campaign that we're currently um, pushing ahead with. And we kind of try to mitigate this by choosing a protein that's highly conserved in all of the SARS-CoV-2 viruses and strains, the spike protein. Um, you guys can understand how essential this protein is uh, if it's what it needs to enter the cells in our body and that it doesn't have a lot of wiggle room in terms of evolution to just change amino acids willy-nilly uh, with that protein because they'll die out. Um, they won't be able to infect a new host and they won't be able to replicate. And the beauty of RNA technology is that we're halfway there with new vaccines or should we ever need to make new vaccines against new variants? Because if a new variant arises, we can just simply sequence its DNA, make some transcripts that can synthesize the proteins that we need them to make, and boom, we are able to activate an immune response against it. The most time-consuming aspect would be clinical testing, um, which is what puts us at the mercy of variants, in my opinion, because it would be, it's taken a year to get where we are now with approved vaccines. If we tried to start making vaccines against, say, the Delta variant today, it would take another year to make those accessible to people. So yes, we're definitely at the uh, mercy of variants, in my opinion, although the technology makes it a lot easier. Um, we're not at square one, is what I'm trying to say. Yeah, and and I wanted to bring up the Delta variant because, you know, it, it's a very, it's a topic that people are very afraid of. Because a lot of people seem to think that all the work that's been put into vaccines up until now is not working against the Delta variant. And, you know, that, that's not the case. So vaccine efficacy, of course, it drops a little, but it's still effective against this variant. So public health officials are still promoting vaccination protect against the Delta variant should it ever, you know, for instance, come to Canada and really affect us. Um, and you also have less hospitalization against those who are vaccinated with the Delta variant. Um, can't really, you know, hospitalize people that are vaccinated, at least in, in most cases. Um, and another thing that, you know, Aideen mentioned is that these mutations aren't going to drastically change the protein, you know, the S protein in this case, mm -hmm. um, to the point that um, the antibodies that our body has, you know, made against the other variants just are, I guess, null at this point. Um, it won't happen to that degree. It's not like it's going to evolve into another form. Um, and so, that, that's something that like I like to bring up because I, I do see it. You know, for, for example, on science Twitter, there's this debate on you know how the vaccines, the current vaccines work against the Delta. It's still relatively effective. Um, and another thing I wanted to bring up is so you mentioned this um, arms race with SARS-CoV-2, and um, there was there was an article that I read a while back, and I actually sent it to you guys. Um, and it talked about so I, I don't know too much about this, but it also talked about how you know while the virus can evolve as well, so they can mutate. So can our immune cells. So, for example, our the cells that make antibodies can actually have mutations that occur within those antibodies that they present, mm -hmm. and that can change things up as well. I don't know okay. too much about that, but um, it it seemed like a very interesting concept and one that has a lot of implications when it comes to um, 
you know, naturally dealing with variants as opposed to right. um, using, you know, previous vaccines or having to generate new vaccines. Yeah, don't worry, Ali. I'll, I'll get to that. I'll get to it. Don't worry. Oh, that's good. <laughs> oh, okay. Very nice. I'm so glad <laughs> because uh, I don't know what to say. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, right. I, I'm like familiar with um, like somatic hypermutation and stuff and like how your B cells can make your antibodies super, super specific and have really high affinity against an antigen. But mm -hmm. I don't know how that would work with like throwing a whole new antigen into the mix. I guess my main concern with um, vaccines and new variants is that we really need to achieve something close to herd immunity, even though I don't believe that there's such a thing right now with COVID. Mm -hmm. um, just simply so that we don't give the virus the opportunity to create variants that could be vaccine resistant, because of course, like that's the main issue is that every time the virus enters a new person, it changes in some way. Right. And if they are a vaccinated person, uh, we have to think about what kind of selection pressure is being put on the population of viruses in that person and what's going to be transmitted to somebody else. Yeah. Uh, and vaccines are not considered living in the sense that if they don't have a host cell, they're not going to be functioning. So they depend on our machinery to, you know, replicate themselves and to spread. So as long as they can't get into us, they're harmless. Right. You, you, yeah. mean, the, you mean the virus, right? I think you said the vaccine. The virus, yes. Sorry. They both start with the Vaccines are alive. I mean, not that vaccines are alive either. <laughs> vaccines, vaccines are, are also... As well. Yeah. <laughs> but he meant viruses. Viruses are, are dead. Yeah. yeah. So I guess the next question is, how long are we immune to the virus after vaccine? Hmm. Okay. Well, this is pretty interesting. So I read an article that Ali found uh, by MIT Medical that had this headline that said, "How long are we immune to virus to the virus after vaccination?" And it's something that I feel like a lot of people are thinking about. I know my parents kept asking me this question, believing me to be some sort of immunology expert. But um, didn't they know that's me? <laughs> my parents yeah, that's also ask a lot of immunology questions, and I feel bad that I can't answer all of them. My parents don't ask me immunology questions at all. And I'm like, please ask me. Don't go what on Facebook, please. What if they already know everything? They must, apparently. Right. Well, anyways, let's say that you're, I don't know, like you're planning a trip or a vacation for this coming fall, and you might be worried that you may no longer be mean to the virus. Like, maybe you believe you might need a booster shot, which is essentially kind of like getting another vaccine, basically, to up your antibody count. Well, the short and honestly a little anticlimactic answer to the question is that we need more time to monitor the progress of the vaccine by looking at currently vaccinated people to see if they still have an adequate immune response to protect themselves against the virus. Um, however, according to the article, which I mentioned by MIT, recent data has shown that more, more than adequate levels of antibodies uh, have been persisting for at least six months in people who have received both doses of the Moderna vaccine as well as the Pfizer vaccine. Um, so again, with the question being, when will you need a booster shot? Well, it, it honestly depends on who you're asking. Um, so CEOs of both Pfizer and Moderna have estimated that individuals who were among the first to be vaccinated will need a booster shot as early as this coming fall. But virologists, disease experts, and other scientists are actually a bit skeptical of this, um, especially considering that these estimates are carried out by the pharmaceutical executives rather than other scientific experts. So there might be like other intentions behind that. Um, 
But once again, the, sh- the short answer to the question is that the science isn't just, it, it isn't there yet. And just like as a quick like anecdote, I, I was listening to an interview um, of uh, Anthony Fauci and they were asking him about what he thought about some of the quote unquote mistakes he had made about wearing masks. So initially when the pandemic hit, I believe Anthony Fauci uh, thought that masks would only really need to be worn by the healthcare professionals and doctors and, and such. Um, some, you know, also the elderly, but everyone else wouldn't really need to. And then as time went on, he would say that, well, no, actually the results show that wearing a mask not only helps prevent the spread of it, but also keeps you safe and everyone should wear it. And so he received a lot of criticism, but he gave a, a really good answer where he said, well, it's not that I was wrong because I was just following the science and you can't really say that the science was wrong. So it's more like that's just the way science is, right? You just you just follow the evidence that you have at the time, right? So like the evidence can be dynamic in, in certain scenarios, especially with, with a pandemic. Um, and right now we're still pretty early in the pandemic, I would say, um, especially with like all the news about the variants coming up as well. So just that's a terrible thought. Well, ruined my day. <laughs> well, I, I mean, guess the other thing I wanted to mention was like uh, at least one of like my profs kind of talked a lot about like natural boosting. Like, like you're saying, this is just the beginning, and it's going to be around forever, probably. Mm-hmm. And a lot of scientists are talking about it possibly becoming a seasonal virus. Um, you will probably be boosted through natural infection, but the great thing is, like with a vaccine, you won't have the type of severe illness that we've come to expect well here maybe well maybe, here maybe maybe this will um help diminish your, your fears a bit so in terms of antibody levels some people are wondering that won't they be lower compared to the more recently vaccinated people well well yes that's highly likely but again your immune system consists of other components besides antibodies you guys mentioned i didn't you mentioned b cells and, and as well as t cells going with this i right? love it right so so we have again we have b cells which produce antibodies and then we have t cells which attack infected cells as we mentioned before now while antibodies may decline over time once someone has recovered from an illness or has taken a vaccine some B cells and T cells turn into what we call memory B cells and memory T cells. And as the name suggests, these cells remember the pathogen. And so they can respond if by chance it does return. And uh, the Biological Sciences Journal released a published article showing uh, early research conducted by Ali Alibedi and colleagues. I thought it was a cool paper. Um, and it showed that COVID-19 survivors and vaccinated people possess both B and T cells many months after recovery or post-vaccination, suggesting the existence of these memory cells. Um, and so this... Wait, so, so yeah. these memory cells? Because mm-hmm. this is something that, you know, when, when I took physiology, they talked about these, uh, these types of cells. So it wasn't really, it wasn't known, so it wasn't confirmed that these memory cells existed. So like memory B well well it's specific for COVID 19 anyways oh i see right i see yeah yeah so it's just kind of like a confirmatory thing where it's like okay yeah Mm -hmm. these are a thing in COVID 19 as well gotcha yeah and then so this kind of also segues into what we talked about earlier with with the variants um so how does being vaccinated help against that or even just like recovering from just COVID 19 infection well it turns out like ali mentioned earlier that your memory b cells can mutate just like the virus mutates um, kind of like that, um, the co-arms race that Adine mentioned as well. So this process is called the somatic hypermutation. 
And so these modified B cells are actually retained. So they're, they're kept in your body in addition to your normal B cells that fought like the, the, the previous COVID-19, so not the variant. And so there was a study um, that was published by Nature where uh, Christian Gabler and his colleagues found that in people who had recovered from COVID-19, some of their memory B cells had mutated to produce antibodies that had a better propensity to recognize new viral variants, which is pretty cool. So it's like our body is putting up a fight right, without us really like knowing, which is pretty cool in terms of, of new viral variants anyways. And in addition to why the, you guys need yeah. to get into immunology. It's so cool. It's actually really Your cool. Your immune system is amazing. Yeah, I mean, I mean, even if it's just not immunology, like this, I mean, just what Julian mentioned, this this happens in all of biology. You have these extremely complex systems that just back each other up and just, you know, mm-hmm. when it, for, for example, when you're fighting a pathogen or when your cells are, you know, a- any biological process, there, there's so much complexity and it's so planned out, it seems. You know, when you look at a cell, um, it, it, it appears really random, um, but, you know, it's so organized. And that's one of the reasons I biology is because all these amazing things happen. And mm-hmm. understanding these systems is so crucial in times like this. You know, I'm, 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 a, I'm happy to call myself someone who studied biology. Oh, it's cool. It's so cool. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. for sure. For sure. So going back, so in addition to the, the, the memory B cells potentially mutating, we also have our T cells that aren't as easily fooled by variants. So this is because T cells respond to fragments from many different parts of the virus, not just the spike protein. So for example, if the spike protein were to be mutated, the T cells could still kill infected cells based off of other fragments. So they don't use just one identifier, they use multiple, so they're not as easily fooled by variants. Um, however, it's it's important to keep in mind with both of these scenarios, with the the B cell mutations and the T cells, that they aren't guaranteed to fight against the variants. So B cell mutations may not occur, right? Sometimes they're just by chance, or be sufficient to protect against infection from variants. And T cells can still be fooled by specific mutations, but it's still nice to know and reassuring to know that our bodies can rapidly adapt to put up a fight. And I think the main takeaway from all of this is that there's no reason to believe that you're not well protected for now and for the foreseeable future, at least, if you have, if you have had the vaccine or have recovered from the virus. Um, and it's also important to remember that even if you were among the very first to receive a vaccine, scientists have been studying the persistence of immunity in people who received vaccines even earlier than us from clinical trials, blah, blah, clinical trials, so volunteers. And uh, this will therefore serve as an early warning system in case something does come up and we can uh, be kept, like, kept informed, I guess, and make decisions based off of that ahead of time. Okay, so we've talked a lot about um, immunology and COVID, but like, let's get back to mRNA. And you might be wondering, okay, so we've had this technology for a long time. We've known a lot about mRNA for a long time but it's never been used in this context before. Like, why is that? Um, Well, honestly, we just really needed the evidence to back it up that mRNA-based vaccines could be um, used to treat different uh, infectious diseases. Um, And with regard to the COVID vaccines, it's important to remember that it's not like scientists chose one vaccine method and ran with it. There were hundreds of vaccine manufacturers around the world 
who were trying to find a vaccine that would be effective against COVID to try to stem the pandemic. mRNA vaccines were just merely the first to have a high enough efficacy and safety. Um, they were the first to be approved. And it's arguably a testament to the power of this novel technology. Um, a piece in Nature Reviews Immunology published in 2020 stated by the end of July 2020, there were 27 serious candidates for the COVID-19 vaccine and 139 vaccines in preclinical development. So there was no shortage of competition um, at all. Uh, <laughs> foreign mRNA itself is immunogenic and it stimulates the innate immune response. So maybe mRNA itself was so... Um, effective because it uh, is already known to cause an immune response just by mRNA being in your body um, out and about. Mm. mRNA-based technology is super fast, which is one of the reasons that I think that it's amazing. Like I mentioned before, even though we have new variants that are kind of scary, it's easy enough to figure out what mRNA we're working with. The hard thing is producing the vaccines. Um, and what astounded me was when I read that Moderna was able to determine the mRNA sequence of the viral spike protein that would be used in their vaccine within four days of receiving their first ever complete SARS-CoV-2 genome. So mRNA vaccines, they're new technology, but we can just see how fast and good they are at doing what they do. Um, and it's kind of like shuffling in a new era for vaccinology, for sure. And RNA, mRNA, I should say, mRNA being a sensible choice for this COVID pandemic also relates to um, uh, an area that people, you know, are, are scared about. And that's why was it, why, why was our response, you know, when it comes to creating a vaccine so fast? And people associate, you know, a, a fast response with something like haste, you know, public health officials just want to get something out there to appease the public. And um, I wanted to speak a little to that. And the reason why we were able to get vaccines out so quickly is that our understanding of mRNA isn't limited to this pandemic. It's been going on for years, ever since mRNA was discovered in the 1900s. Um, and so that ultimately resulted in our ability to implement mRNA vaccines relatively quickly. And I should add that, you know, an urgent situation such as a pandemic um, requires a quick response. We can't just be there, just sitting around waiting, you know, 10 years for a response to this vaccine. So, you know, scientists had to respond. And um, I'm going to talk about three points um, of, you know, of, of hurdles. And this is covered in the SciShow. So on YouTube, SciShow is a very, um, it's a very popular uh, YouTube channel. And I really recommend uh, anyone who loves science to go check them out. And they had an episode on mRNA vaccines. And I'm going to talk about three hurdles that they uh, stated that science had to overcome that enabled us to, you know, create uh, mRNA vaccine. So one thing is that, as Aideen mentioned, mRNA is very good at activating the immune system. But, you know, sometimes it may be too good. And that's not a good thing. Because what if I inject mRNA as a vaccine? But I injected to the point that my immune system is quickly activated and all the mRNA is destroyed even before the cells can translate it. So the question would become, how do we avert that? How do we overcome this issue? And so what scientists understood is that, well, why doesn't the mRNA that our cells produce, why doesn't that create an immune response? And the reason, one of the reasons is that our mRNA is actually modified. 
So scientists thought, so why don't we modify the mRNA in our vaccines as to not produce a strong enough immune response such that our cells can translate these uh, mRNAs into proteins and then allow that um, spike protein to generate that immune response. So that was one point. Another point is RNA stability. So RNA stability is a huge, uh, is a huge biological process that um, is tightly regulated. Um, and part of this regulation is that we have these RNases, which are proteins that degrade RNA, such as mRNA. Um, and so if we just inject naked mRNA cells, that's going to get degraded. So the question then becomes, how do we stop that? So one, two things that protect mRNA from being degraded um, from RNases includes the 5' prime cap and a 3' prime poly A. So this is another thing that scientists add before um, it gets injected. I think this was um, talked about uh, near the beginning of the episode. And the third thing that was also, again, talked about, delivery of mRNA vaccines. We can't just, you know, throw them in, just inject mRNA because they can't enter cells. They're too large and they're negative. Um, and so, again, we talked about this where we use lipid nanoparticles where the cells can enter by endocytosis. So essentially what I'm trying to get at is that our use of mRNA vaccines Moderna is not something that's something that we've come up with just now. It's the culmination of all the research we've done over the years up until now, allowing us to neatly and carefully integrate it into um, medicine. Another concern that people typically have is, well, mRNA, it's genetic material. DNA is genetic material. Can't it integrate into our genome? And, you know, this is a valid a, a valid concern because one of the things that is an issue is, well, what if it inserts itself into a you know a, a tumor suppressor gene or it activates some oncogene and what if it causes cancer um, or what if it causes another immune reaction? Will it be better in the sense that it'll prolong our exposure to the antigen because it's constantly going to be transcribed from our DNA and then made into mRNA and then into protein and that'll help us you know. Um, you know, prolong our exposure and also help us protect ourselves against the uh, coronavirus, or will it cause an autoimmune disorder where the immune system to destroy our own? So to address this, um, I'm going to briefly talk about the process by which mRNA is made and then process and how it's um, exported out of the new. So the idea is that we have DNA and then we have a special protein called RNA polymerase that's going to read, you know, certain regions of our DNA and it's going to turn that into mRNA. As this is happening, um, mRNA is going to undergo various processing. Um, but uh, one thing that I want to focus on is the idea of proteins binding to this. And this is particularly important when it comes to export, because there are certain proteins that bind that are going to turn this mRNA into something that's export competent. That is to say, it's able to be exported to the cell. Right, so it's uh, not like the cell, sorry, the nucleus. It's kind of like a like a checkpoint system where it's like if you don't have these certain requirements, you will not leave the nucleus, right? Exactly. Yeah, and so when it does leave the nucleus, let's call this protein that makes this mRNA protein competent. Let's call it protein A. This mRNA pr that turns this mRNA export competent, protein A. Hmm. Once it's exported into the cytoplasm, protein A dissociates a lot which doesn't allow that mRNA to go back. So what I'm trying to ultimately get at here is that if we don't supply um, the mRNA in our vaccine, these 
proteins that are required for it to go back into the nucleus. So if we don't give it protein A, it's not going to be able to cross the nucleus. So um, from what I understand, this isn't really a concern. But of course, science is complex, and there's so much to be learned um, mm. from that. Um, and yeah. Right. So essentially, because we're not providing specific proteins, the mRNA that gets injected into the cell will just stay in the cytoplasm. Exactly. And it's going to get translated there by our ribosomes, mm -hmm. and then we're going to get our uh, good old immune response. I have a question. Stop. Um, I'm just thinking like, okay, so we're not providing the proteins that the RNA needs, but like, right. if these exist in the cell... Right. Um, is there any chance that like the RNA could associate with that? Or I, I guess maybe I don't, those proteins so, are super localized to the nucleus. and Or perhaps, so this protein we called protein A, um, maybe it gets degraded the moment that the mRNA is exported. I don't know too much about this, um, about you know uh, mRNA export into the cytoplasm, but I would imagine that it does get exported because that it does get degraded or maybe immediately gets imported back because you can imagine that if you just export an mRNA and that protein A remains there, um, you don't want your mRNAs going back. You want to translate those proteins. So mm -hmm. I would imagine there is some sort of regulatory mechanism that keeps mm -hmm. them away from the mRNAs you want translated. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It would only really be an issue if you had some sort of mutation that would make that protein stay in the cytoplasm or maybe like the degradation complex gets inactivated or something. Yeah, but if, if that's the issue, I guess the... The COVID virus is the least of your worries. Uh, <laughs> yeah, you'd, you would have a lot more disorders. Right. Yep. <laughs> yeah. And then you have to think about like all the steps after that. Like say it could find a way to import into your nucleus. Like that doesn't guarantee it's going to be able to access yeah. a open part of your DNA. Like exactly. DNA yeah, because <laughs> yeah, th this is a part that we were debating on whether we should talk about because it, it is rather complex um, when it comes to, you know, um, integrating uh, exogenous genetic material into your um, into your own genome, but hopefully, as it stands, you know the vaccine has proved to be safe. Hopefully, it continues to prove to be safe. Mm -hmm. um, and okay, yeah, so those <laughs> same. I have two of them actually. <laughs> I would actually say that it's good that it's com complex because that would just imply that there's multiple safeguards against some sort of error occurring. Exactly. Yeah, because because if it was one dimensional, then you know, once you get past that first line of defense, then you're essentially screwed. But, you know, yeah. when you have redundancy <laughs> or when you have you know, alternate pathways, then mm -hmm. I guess you're more safe. Exactly. Our body's really looking out for it. Love it. Okay, so another type of vaccine that I wanted to mention while we're talking about mRNA vaccines is something that you've probably heard of. Um, they're called personalized cancer vaccines. What's that I hear you say? What? You can't have vaccines for cancer. Cancer hey. isn't an infectious disease. <laughs> You're right. It's not infectious. But cancer, while most commonly thought of a as a genetic disease, is only really allowed to go on unchecked when your immune system is somehow, <laughs> somehow failing. So cancer is also an immunological disease. And you've probably heard something about how scientists are trying to ramp up the immune system in cancer patients to control their own cancer. And this is a rapidly emerging field of immunotherapy, or more specifically, immuno-oncology. Um, you might have already guessed that one way to boost your immune system is with a vaccine. So a really cool thing that scientists are doing right now 
is taking the tumor of someone who's suffering from cancer, sequencing the genome of the cells in those in the tumor mm -hmm. um, to identify abnormal proteins um, that are causing cancer. And when you can do when you do this, you can make a vaccine that encodes the mRNA of the abnormal proteins in the cancerous cells. Mm -hmm. And therefore, you prime the immune system to kill the cells that are producing these proteins. Mm -hmm. The important thing to mention here is that these proteins need to be unique to the tumor or else your immune system is going to target your, everything in sight. your own cells. And that's really bad. So mm -hmm. this technology is really cool and really promising, but it's in its really early days. Um, but it has been really effective. And I mentioned earlier that this is kind of where Moderna got its start as a company was trying to create um, personalized cancer vaccines for people suffering from cancer. Yeah. And Julian, I don't know if you uh, remember, we covered this in, uh, in our, uh, oh, I don't remember which course it was, but it was, it was one of our fourth year courses. Mm -hmm. We were talking about the neoantigen uh, hypothesis where it said that cells that have defects in DNA repair are actually very good to the immune system because they're going to be creating a bunch of abnormal proteins with abnormal sequences mm -hmm. that essentially act as um, essentially antigens to which our antibodies can, can recognize. So yeah. yeah, this this interplay between our uh, between cancer cells and the immune system is very interesting. Um, I, I would say it's you know at the forefront of cancer research because it has a lot of implications when it comes to treating uh, treating cancer. So it's it's very cool. Uh, yeah, so I think, you know, we focused on mRNA therapy, and that's all thanks to um, the COVID pandemic and because of the fact that we've been using mRNA vaccines. But, you know, it's, we're not limited to using just mRNA in therapy. Um, you know, RNA therapy as a, as a field is very broad. And um, I'll summarize this by using an article written by Sarah DeWeert, um, and she explains uh, RNA therapies very, very well. So um, I'm just going to use that as a foundation for so, uh, like I've mentioned countless times, I think, this episode is that RNA therapy isn't something new. Um, for example, in 1990, you have the first evidence that RNA can actually be used in therapy. Um, and that was essentially uh, studies that showed that injecting mRNA into skeletal muscle of mice resulted in the production of said protein. So it's just the idea that if you inject mRNA into, you know, exogenous mRNA into a different source, you're going to get expression of that protein. So that was very interesting to scientists. Um, and RNA vaccines were actually first developed in three when mRNA from influenza viruses were actually um, injected into mice results. Oh, sorry, in uh, response. you caught a bit What's there. Up? I think it said, you said 1993, right? Uh, yeah, okay. so they were first developed in 1993. So it, it, was, a, it was a while back, mm -hmm. but it wasn't obviously used. But um, it's mm -hmm. just the idea that the potential was there and it was recognized by scientists very early on mm -hmm. um, in RNA's history. Uh, and then in 1998, you had what's called short interfering RNAs, otherwise known as siRNAs, as well as antisense oligos. Oligos are just, you know, shorter sequences of uh, of RNA in this case, and they were actually shown to affect gene expression in model organisms. Um, and further down the road, um, you have people showing. Uh, therapeutic potential of siRNAs and antisense oligos. And I'll bring up examples um, later on. So when it comes to RNA therapy, they can be sorted into 
Um, so mRNA is used to make proteins, and that's you know what we discussed with respect to um, the uh, COVID pandemic. And then you also have RNAs that target nucleic acids, which is DNA. So those are siRNAs and antisense oligos. And then you have RNAs that are going to target proteins. So there's so three. Uh, so there's three groups. Three categories. Yeah. And I'll very briefly go through each of these groups and you know discuss their potential, what they do, um, etc. So. Uh, the first group will get out of the way straight away, and that's just mRNAs used proteins. So uh, we discussed this with RNA vaccines, where we provide you know, our cells with mRNA for the spike protein, and then we translate that into protein, and then we get an immune response. Um, and so we can also, with respect to mRNAs used to make proteins, we can also consider patients that lack certain proteins. Um, and then we can treat them by exogenously supplying uh, this this mRNA for that protein, um, but there are certain things that we need to consider with respect to you know should we use an mRNA to treat um, the lack of a protein or should we use the protein itself? So mm -hmm. for example, we need to ask ourselves what is the disease treat? Uh, in the case of diabetes, I would say it's simpler to just provide the insulin protein directly because it goes on to act on the appropriate cells. Whereas if we gave you know patients insulin, the mRNA for insulin, um, they, we first have to inject that, cells have to take that up, and then they have to translate it, and then export it, and then act on it. So you get a faster response, I would, I would, I would imagine, when it comes to just uh, injecting the protein directly. Um, and then we, we can also consider how much of the product is needed. Um, for example, if we provide the mRNA, then you know, that mRNA could be used to make many, many proteins. Um, and if we compare that to, you know, protein therapy, we can't, you know, just inject a bunch of proteins. I don't, think. so, um, that's another point of comparison that, you know, consider mm -hmm. the next group that I, yeah, the next group that I'd like to consider is the RNAs that target nucleic So, and by nucleic acids, I mean RNA or DNA, but I'm going to, you know, RNA, RNA interactions. So this group is ultimately characterized by a regulatory as opposed to trying to um, replace a defective or absent protein. And so in this, in this category, we have two types of uh, RNA, and that's our antisense oligos, and these are single RNAs. And then you also have short interfering or siRNA, and these are double-stranded. So very briefly, I'll go through each of these. So antisense oligos get their name because they bind the sense RNA, um, strand, which is just another fancy word for the strand of RNA that's getting um, that's getting translated. So, like your, your and target, as basically your target mRNA, basically. Exactly, exactly. Um, and by being able to bind these mRNAs, they're able to do one of two things: prevent protein production by blocking translation, so they don't allow um, ribosomes to read through the mRNA, um, or by altering splicing patterns. Uh, and either way, you're ultimately preventing, you know. Uh, either the protein from translated or um, in the case of splicing, and I won't go into splicing at all because it's very complicated, um, you're, uh, you know, for example, restoring a reading frame. So you're bringing a protein back to its you know, almost wild type size. Mm -hmm. And if, if, if you guys like to search it up, Dr. Jim Dowling, which is one of the professors at UT, he's an MD-PhD, and he really looks at, you know, treating a disease known as Duchenne muscular dystrophy using um, these RNAs that target nucleic acid. So again, if you guys are interested, definitely look that up, but I won't really get into it here. 
Um, and then siRNAs are double-stranded molecules that um, are ultimately used to prevent protein production by either means of uh, degradation or just by blocking translation. And this whole process is known as RNA interference. You're interfering with the RNA. Very simple. Um, and yeah, and then the third uh, category that we have are RNAs that are targeting proteins. And this one I, I actually didn't know much about before mm -hmm. I read this article. I didn't know that it really existed. Um, and so these RNAs are known as aptamers. And aptamers just means that they bind to a specific target molecule. And in this case, we're targeting it to a protein. Um, and so RNA aptamers are designed to bind a specific site on the target protein, causing a change in the protein's activity. So you can imagine that we can turn off a protein, turn on a protein, depending on what the defect is we're trying to deal with. Mm -hmm. um, and so one example that's stated in the uh, is, uh, I'm, it's a very hard name to pronounce, pigaptenib, mm -hmm. uh, and that's ultimately used to treat uh, macular degeneration. Uh, and this is caused by blood vessels that ultimately penetrate the retina, causing the vision to degenerate. And so what this RNA aptamer does is that it's going to bind and block the function of a protein that promotes this penetration. of the And so you can, you can really see from all the examples we've discussed is that the, the bottom line is, is that RNA has a lot of potential in the medical field. So definitely uh, be on the lookout. The pandemic just served to accelerate the rate at which we're using these uh, RNA therapies, but it's definitely going to um, increase speed. It's going to pick up traction, and you know, it's 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 going to be an exciting field, an exciting time to you know, follow biology. So yeah, I I personally believe that there's still a lot more to go for mRNA technology, and again, with like all the examples Ali gave, it's got a bunch of applications, and it will come up especially now with all the vaccines, a lot in media, I think. Um, and something that has come up in the media is what about the future of other countries who don't have easy access to these vaccines against COVID, uh, for example, uh, like India? Well, many of these countries have actually asked the vaccine companies themselves, so Moderna and Pfizer, to lift their patents so that the labs in those other countries can start to produce their own vaccines. Um, on May 6th, so pretty recently in the United States, the Biden administration announced their support for waiving patent protections for the coronavirus vaccines. However, the vaccine companies, as well as the pharmaceutical industry as a whole, has voiced warning and opposition against this decision. Now, one may initially think that this is obvious, right, considering how they would want to keep their monetary gains from their unique vaccines, right, since Moderna and Pfizer are the only ones capable of, of producing them. Um, however, there's much more to it than just that. And the reasoning for opposing the Biden administration's announcement is actually grounded on a very valid argument, I believe, at least. So the argument is that making these vaccines is not so simple that one can just merely read the patent or, or the recipe and start producing vaccines from the get-go. So the procedure is complex, and it requires precise guidance from Pfizer and Moderna themselves. Now, while that may seem like a simple solution, one could imagine how difficult it would be for these companies to monitor the development of vaccines for tons of labs all around the world. Additionally, the procedures to make these vaccines require specific technology that not every lab is equipped with. Uh, so the consequences of releasing the patent could result in the production of ineffective and potentially dangerous vaccines. Now, on, on one hand, one could see how Biden's decision 
makes sense considering how the United States would would want to look like an international leader. And the announcement by the Biden administration has already garnered praise from global health activists. Um, there is a definite political motiv- motivation here, but it is also true that other countries are indeed in need for a steady supply of vaccines. So maybe maybe the risk is worth it. Uh, but on the other hand, the pharmaceutical companies also make a good case for opposing this decision, considering the consequences of making basically counterfeit vaccines, I guess you could say. Either way, the announcement is merely a small step towards potentially waiving intellectual property rights, since negotiating an agreement that satisfies the needs of all the countries involved would undoubtedly take a decent amount of time. Not yeah, too sure and so, exactly how long, but for sure a good amount. Yeah, so I, I was actually going to give an example of this. So, um, of course, the idea of underdeveloped countries not having vaccines is a is a huge issue but let's consider the countries that do have the facilities and well, i mean the scientific facilities to generate vaccines so one example is iran so the re- so iran doesn't use pfizer or moderna or any of the western vaccines and the reason for that is you know not really suitable for this uh podcast but the idea here is that there is a silver lining in that you know for example iran was able to test its own facilities and make its own virus uh, virus its own vaccine and it's called uh barricat and it's actually very cool that you know they were able to test themselves how far they were able to go in generating a vaccine and although it wasn't an mrna vaccine it's actually an inactivated vaccine uh inactivated vaccine and the paper is in preprint still so there's a lot left to be reviewed by a lot of you know um other you know scientific authorities but it's just the idea that you know when a country is tested um, it's cool to see how independent it can be instead of using, you know, a vaccine from another. So there is a silver lining in, in all. For sure. But, yeah. Just to like add on to this discussion, I think like talking about patent waiving is a really important topic. I mean, we've, we need to learn from history and even the present day. Um, and I'm, I can, I struggle to think of a better example than HIV and AIDS around the world and, big pharmaceutical companies holding on to their patents for life-saving medication uh, for HIV treatment. Mm. We've seen how that causes huge problems. I mean, AIDS, HIV AIDS is a pandemic that we've been facing for 60 years, longer than that. Mm-hmm. We need, we can't afford to make the same mistakes. Uh, my, my problem kind of looking at all these patent issues is it doesn't really address the problem for me. Um, like you're saying, even if the patent was waived, I think a lot of these countries wouldn't be able to produce vaccines to the scale that they need to be produced at. Mm -hmm. The problem for me is like these larger countries buying so many vaccines and then kind of like holding the rest of the world hostage. I'm looking at you, Canada. (laughs) Canada bought, I think at one point it was estimated that the Canadian population, everyone in Canada could be vaccinated five times. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's more like hoarding <laughs> for me yeah. that gets on my nerves. <laughs> and if we can't um, allow these countries to manufacture their own vaccines, and again, this would probably be a moot point for all the things that we've discussed. By the time that those countries could design and manufacture and test those vaccines, there would be new variants that would be would would not succumb to the kind of immunity that we're talking about. So it's really about trying to 
encourage global collaboration and sharing of these vaccines um, for me <laughs> and it upsets me because like the pandemic is just going to keep going unless we figure a way like out because because as history has shown with all the pandemics think of the black plague natural immunity is not enough people need vaccines or they're going to be left defenseless and so by failing to you know either lift the patent or uh, alternatively you know export vaccines you're ultimately you know i i would say that it's it's a crime against humanity because you're mm -hmm. not saving them you're leaving them to die and you know as for the hiv thing you know everyone remembers i don't know if people remember now martin shkreli he was the one who for one of the uh for one of the uh, therapeutics right. for H, yeah, he, he made it really expensive. Mm -hmm. So you can imagine how you know this is an entirely different ethical issue that needs to be dealt with, and it explores an aspect of medicine that you know people turn a blind eye to, um, especially because many people, well, not many people, but you know the well-off people, they don't really need to consider this stuff. But you know, when you're looking at underdeveloped countries or people that are you know in poverty, this is something that they have to deal with, and this is something that really needs. Yeah, it definitely yeah. needs attention. All that to say, like, think about these issues and try to help where you can. Um, think think globally, act locally kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, but with that, like, let's wrap up this episode. Thank you guys so much for listening. Um, we hope that we touched on all the topics that uh, you find most relevant, but Please let us know if there's anything that you'd like us to add or if there are any topics that you'd like to hear in the future. Um, we'd also really like your feedback. If you want to um, message us on Instagram or send us an email, you can do that um, and let us know how we can improve the podcast. Uh, but yeah, thank you so much for listening. Yeah. Hope this helped. And I think for the next month, it'll be exciting because I think we're covering more of a, a more hypothetical, fun uh, episode kind of like the jurassic park one so that'll be fun less serious than Maybe. pandemic <laughs> <laughs> more yeah right thank you guys and we'll see you next time